If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This episode is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Somebody stole our website. Oh no, whatever shall we do? I mean, I guess you could go to the new website, http colon slash slash breakingmathpodcast.app with no www for all you old timers. So breakingmathpodcast.app? I mean, if you're into that sort of thing. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Gabriel. And today we have a special episode. Gabriel, what's it about? Today we're going to talk about the technology that we find most inspiring in our favorite science fiction. We're also going to talk about the real science that inspires that. And, with, of course, with all science fiction, you have things that might happen, things that might not happen. But without further ado... We have this very special episode of Breaking Math that we're calling an episode because we put so much thought into it. Enjoy. Humanity, since its inception, has been nebulously defined. Every technological advancement has changed what it means to be a person, and every person has changed what it means to advance. In the same vein, there is a concept called transhumanism, which refers to what it will mean to be a person. This can range from everything, from genetic engineering, to artificial intelligence, to technology which is beyond our current physical understanding. So what does it mean to be a person? And is transhumanism compatible with our natural understanding, if it exists, of being? All of this and more on this special episode of Breaking Math. Episode 9, Humanity 2.0. I'm Jonathan Baca. And I'm Gabriel Hesch. And today uh, we have a few new guests. Uh, We have Julian Wilde. Hi, Julian. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. I'm very, very glad to have you here, Julian. Uh, Julian, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I, myself, am a human. I was born and raised as such and uh, continue to be one and want to be one. Um, I'm uh, from right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I, uh, I own Wild Humans, which is a performing arts collaborative group uh, that helps to produce a lot, uh, lots of different things, from live paintings to slam poetry to a band called Wild Humans. We kind of do it all. And so big theater background, big music background. I'm happy to be here and big sci-fi nerd. So what authority does a wild human have when it comes to domesticated humans, ex- especially extremely domesticated like we're going to be talking about in this episode? Well, I guess the theory is that we're all wild humans and this is our natural habitat and nothing that we do, no substance we invent for ourselves, no, nothing we manufacture is actually outside of the realm of nature at all. It's all part of a natural evolution. And so we're all wild humans and this is our natural habitat with, with clothes made from plant matter and microphones fashioned from ore in the ground and all of that. Very good point. And we also have 
Sam Sanders. And Sam, uh, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm, I'm a longtime science fiction geek. I've always been really into getting into uh, into different realities and universes and, and seeing where humans can go, at least in the imagination realm. Uh, I'm right now a student and studying to become a physical therapist, and I'm really excited to see where humanity can go using these uh, transhuman concepts. And Gabriel, how would you define transhumanism? Oh, transhumanism. That, that's fascinating. The terminology is actually newer to me. Now, I haven't been quite in the loop with science fiction because of my studies, but I've read some stuff recently. Of course, transhumanism has a definition. Um, let's see. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it. Transhumanism Transhumanism is the belief that, that we will further our capabilities uh, as humans, and we will also perhaps change some of the fundamentals of what it means to be human through technology. And uh, you sourced a lot of this episode from a Dr. Sean Miyamoino, right? That is absolutely correct. I'm thrilled to announce that I was uh, perusing the, the interwebs uh, about a month back, and, and I found an article on one of the very, very popular uh, uh, pop science uh, pages. And there was a discussion specifically on transhumanism. And I felt that Dr. Um, Mio, Dr. Mio Moino had a lot to say on it that was very interesting. Yeah, and we'll be covering what he said a little bit later. Yes, yes, we, we absolutely will. It, it, it was almost, he was having a nice, riveting discussion. And uh, um, how do I phrase this? There are two very different opinions from people with very strong feelings. And it, it gave me a lot to think about, about uh, uh, technology and, and the whole idea of transhumanism. Now, I'm very interested in transhumanism myself. Um, as a programmer, I believe that certain programming languages as well as certain modalities of thought are transhuman by their nature. Lisp, for example, a language invented in 1959 at MIT, is one of my favorite modalities of thought. Yeah, you know, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of people who talk about uh, transhumanist ideas, and I, I know that some people who find the ideas of transhumanism, of transhumanism frightening, you know, I often think about uh, early transhumanists, uh, even include people like Galileo, who invented his version of a telescope. Human beings are not naturally able to see uh, uh, that far, but, but he augmented his own abilities. So I don't find the, the idea so frightening. But, and, I, and I also think that we, we are already much more further along uh, in transhumanism than we realize. Um, I wanted to say one other thing as well. As I was researching transhumanism, I realized that this topic has been touched on by, by a lot of different media outlets. I saw articles from National Geographic. I saw articles from Wired Magazine, and I even saw a whole slew of uh, Christian transhumanism podcasts, or, I'm sorry, Christian transhumanism blogs, which I've, I found very interesting. And one of the things that you said about us being further along than we think reminds me of a definition that I've heard for artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is everything that we haven't discovered in computer science, according to some people. And it makes sense when you think about it. The Turing test will be completed by a robot that will fail it later because by definition they'll have a different culture and will their culture mimic ours that's just something that we have to learn in the future and not to assign lesser importance to this but we have one more guest on today's episode again returning is jalila arthur hello reporting for duty as engineer and commentator and jalila um can you tell us about any of your views on transhumanism well, just immediately on my mind, I was thinking you said modalities of thought. And recently, uh, this deaf woman in one of my classes gave a presentation, and she issued that American Sign Language is not just a language. It is indeed a mo or it's a it's its own modality of thought. And you're referring here to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, correct? Yes. 
So, um, but your question, so that was immediately on my mind, but your question was what I know about transhumanism. And I've read Dune and I was reminded just that it is the inspiration for newly upcoming graphic novel saga. Oh, and for those who are just joining us, uh, uh, those who may not be familiar with what the uh, uh, Spear Wharf hypothesis, I'm sorry, am I saying it right? Spear Wharf? I thought it was Sapir Wharf, but Jalila? Sapir. What the Sapir Wharf hypothesis is, is that language either directs or influences human thought. And Dune is something that we'll be talking about on this episode. I myself am not familiar with Dune, but we have people who are, and they claim that it has to do a lot with transhumanism, and we'll investigate that. Now, but before we begin, before we get into the meat of this episode, I'd like to go ahead and talk a little bit about the discussion that I read on, on Facebook, the discussion specifically on transhumanism. The, the, there was an argument happening, um, and there were two schools of thought. And um, uh, on one hand, there was a gentleman who believed very, very strongly that our future is all in cyber, uh, cybernetics. Um, that is, that we will have to merge with machine in order to, to survive at all. There was another gentleman, Dr. Sean Mio. Moino, who who offered an alternative idea. the The idea is that that in the future our sun will collapse. Our our sun will will uh, uh, have an end of its life, and it'll end in some kind of a supernova. Uh, I I believe actually I'm not sure if the size of our sun will be a supernova or if it will be um a nova. Um, perhaps you know. However, uh, the idea of, of either a nova or a supernova is you might have an electromagnetic pulse, and it, all it would take is a single electromagnetic pulse, and, and, and all electronic life would be done for. So, so the argument is that that's a major bottleneck, and 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 we're really limiting our our means of survival. Um, Let's say that there was a planet that, that had immense, immense gravity. Uh, it is very possible to genetically engineer our descendants to be uh, uh, very stout, very, very strong, and very well adept to survive in that environment. So I, th- I thought I'd like to, to bring that up here in this podcast episode and, and ask um, our guests and our, and, and our hosts uh, about their thoughts on, on genetic engineering versus cybernetics. Is there a difference? That's the question that I think about it. All of my earliest sci-fi dreamers, like Heinlein, like Asimov, like Arthur C. Clarke, when I was listening, when I was reading these books, when I was reading these great authors, I really found that there was a common thread that ran through them in that humans can become something more than we are. And I'm wondering where the line is because earlier you introduced the idea of artificial intelligence, but is that just post-organic life? And also, if we're deliberately designing machines and we're deliberately designing organic life forms have we discovered a point where there is no difference and really is it transhumanism or is it post-organic humanism that's what i think about for me it seems like um the transhumanist technology front is is happening it's it's a progress that's happening every day and has been happening for a hundred years you know my dad just got a hearing aid and and he says that if he turns the settings right he can hear somebody talking from across the room and that's that's transhumanism to me so that's something that's that's coming whether we want it to or not now bioengineering and really getting into changing people's biology that's going to be um, more of an ethical thing that's going to keep us from doing it not so much the science i think that's possible and i think I think it will be done, but it's going to be harder as a society to accept that kind of thing where we're changing people's organics. You had talked about the bottlenecking that would happen if, 
you know, electromagnetic pulse or wave, and then all of our electronics are out of the window. So where are we really going with this? And my question is, yeah, like, does it matter? Like, even if that's going to happen, it hasn't happened yet. So we're not going to stop. I mean, here we are. We're, we're definitely not going to stop. This is still exponentially evolving. And so even if it does bottleneck, it doesn't mean that we're not just going to go up and face that bottleneck. Core memory, which is an old form of memory, you can stomp on it. You could put it at the bottom of the sea and dig it up 100 years later and it'll still work. It'll still have the same information on it. That's a form of memory that we used to use. And what I'm bringing that up for is because today's memory, you literally unplug it from the computer and it's all gone. Technology does not have to not be supernova resistant just because it's technology. Um, and also merging man and machine at its core is a chemical problem not a biological problem. Uh, chemistry itself will become the next avenue of, of human endeavor because it's physics right now, but what's the next step after physics? Chemistry. Now, I'd like to ask you something else. We, we, we talked a little bit about the short-term practicality of, of um, merging ourselves with uh, machines. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, talk about genetic engineering real quick, and, and, and the diversity. Jonathan, uh, in preparation for this episode, we were talking, and you had mentioned something. You mentioned an, an, an idea of, of an entire planet that, that, that could be like a brain that was made out of like a, a, a fungus type, type, type thing. Um, I hope you don't mind me putting you on the spot. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. I think that having an entire planet that's made out of a thinking fungus would be an amazing opportunity for two reasons. First reason is because it would be paradise uh, for the brain itself. Second of all, I think that if it had any rudimentary interaction with its environment, then what it could do is store things in a very sort of... There's these lizards on the Galapagos Islands that literally shrink their spines when they can't have enough moss to eat. And I feel like in that same vein, or in the vein of fungus that only exists in spores for a certain amount of time, humans, when they come across something extremely difficult like a supernova might only exist in virtual spore form. There's nothing about proliferation of humanity that has to do with numbers. We've been reduced to 70,000 or less before. We could do it again. Now, what makes you think that we don't have that already? I mean, science has found that there are fungi that connect the roots of trees in deciduous forests and temperate zones, that when one tree in a forest is sick, the other trees will actually send nutrients via that fungus to the tree that's sick to help heal it. I mean, what you're talking about could be something that we live on and just haven't come to understand yet already. Definitely. Um, and if you look at the amount of connections in fungus, it's much more than the human brain for mm -hmm. just a smallish fungus, actually. That is, wow. That, that's, I, I was not aware of that fact. That, that, that's mind-blowing. I'm going to have to research that after this. In fact, I think I'd like to write um, post articles about this on the website, in fact. It's fascinating. If you can find it and share it with folks who are listening, I'd recommend reading about it because it, it blew my mind. Yeah, fungal, net talking. fungal networks that, that, that aid in tree survival. That's amazing. Now, I, I want to say one other thing. One thing that we also uh, discuss when we talk about... Um, um, Merging with computers and electronics versus genetic engineering, we thought, could there be, um, could, could both happen at the same time? I had a great conversation with uh, Jonathan the other night. We were talking about, is it possible to make a, a bioengineered uh, electronic? And I think the example uh, we used was um, rabbit brains or, uh, sorry, um, rabbit uh, neurons. Is that right? Where if we could bioengineer a, a robust sheath, um, a... What, 
Oh yeah, if you can, uh, I think we talked about myelin sheaths. Mm-hmm. If you could, re- if you could engineer them to use gold, like toenails use gold, um, you could create some extremely fast neurons. Right now, the speed of neurons is about 300 feet per second. Given a brain radius of about five inches, that means that the average brain frequency is something like I don't know, 400 hertz. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Which is not very fast, but imagine if you could get it faster than that. The amount of neurons in a brain, and a brain is three-dimensional versus a processor, which is two-dimensional in most computers, you could have just this incredible amount of technology that would almost be at the limit for how fast technology can be. Wow. So, so, so and I'm not just talking about, about a brain itself, but it's very possible to have a robust, very efficient biological electronics, including a biological computer that's more like a computer and less like a human brain. Not only that, I mean, who says that brains have to run on eukaryotic cells. They can run on bacterial cells, wow. which are much smaller. At Whoa. what point do we start attributing consciousness to these machines, though? Do we have to start, are we going to have, you know, they activist groups? You. Yeah, I know, right? When they cry. <laughs> if they do tell you, at what point do you <laughs> when start? When they cry. I'm thrilled you brought this up. This is literally my next topic on here. But I'm, I'm going to sit here and talk and talk about this real quickly. So so there's something, if, if you all go on philosophy forums, there's something called the hard question about consciousness. Do, do you all know what the hard question is about consciousness? It kind of comes down to what 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 is consciousness? Because uh, every effort, uh, uh, when you try to break it down to, to a quantifiable process, it's extremely difficult. I think one of the analogies that uh, there's a gentleman named Daniel Dennett. Uh, um, he is a, a very famous um, uh, uh, researcher. Uh, I believe he's, he's a neuroscientist um, and a philosopher. And he is a strong materialist. He believes that consciousness is, is a phenomenon that is 100% material. But he talks about the difficulty. One neuron is not conscious. One neuron simply does what it does. How, how is it then that a group of neurons working together, we, we, we have this emergent consciousness? I mean, all the transistor does is amplify. It doesn't create calculations. It's the exact same thing. You know, I think we could look toward the animal world to try and answer the question about consciousness because isn't there a gray area that we as humans, we, we consider ourselves special, right? We consider ourselves to be um, greater than an animal in a way that we're conscious of ourselves. And, and boy, the science is sort of starting to come back that that's not exactly the truth. But is that something that we... That, that we actually know? Was there a gray area between completely unconscious, completely conscious, and sentient? Not only that, um, I mean, maybe to, even to support that, all dolphins in captivity are old now because we consider it immoral to put them in captivity. I mean, they could solve these amazing problems. Um, I hope we do the same thing with chimpanzees. Um, octopus, please. Yes. 
You know, also, I wanted to, to actually uh, address exactly what you just said, Julian. So um, I let's talk about consciousness and, and awareness. I, uh, we know that, that, that um, at, at a very small level, viruses are very different than, than bacteria and fungi. We know at, at other levels, um, uh, for instance, insects uh, have a very, very different conscious experience than, than mammals do. Um, in fact, if you don't mind, again, me putting you on the spot, uh, Jonathan, can you uh, tell us a bit about, about um, insect consciousness or what we think we know about it? Sure. You could do this at home. Pull the leg off of a cricket. Don't do that. That's cruel. Is it? The, the cricket doesn't know that its leg got pulled off because it doesn't have a central nervous system. Fascinating. They're, okay, so, so there's no central nervous system. So a cricket is still able to do... Uh, uh, this is going to sound so redundant. A cricket does what a cricket does, but a cricket d- does not know that it does. So a cricket is not conscious, contrary to Pinocchio's Jiminy Cricket. Sorry, that's a joke. My conscience? Yes. <laughs> so so that's fascinating, though. Uh, there's no central nervous... So does a cricket not feel pain? Does it? Again. <laughs> how Then how is their communication? Uh, uh, I imagine it's still electric, it's, right? Uh, it is electric, but it's not centralized. Okay. So a cricket will not really know that it has a leg missing. Okay, that's that. That's still fascinating. Still, I, you know, it, it basically it raises a lot of uncertainty. Even us as humans, we have a very, very hard time grasping the. the it's difficult to pin down what consciousness is. I was just gonna say about consciousness, it all just goes back to where your perspective is. And if you're a materialist, mm-hmm. then you have to understand that you belong to the material realm. And then people try to make these juxtapositions and there's gotta be something bigger and better and above us that can look down on our material. If you need something eternal, then look no further than like the present moment. And so I would say I'm a materialist too, mm-hmm. but then it goes off into like yeah. a stream of Brahmanism. But anyway. To this point, I'd like to talk a little bit about psilocybin. Psilocybin is found in mushrooms, and it's a a psychoactive and, as some argue, a nootropic. And what a nootropic is, is something that helps advance human thought further than traditional neurochemicals can. And the way that psilocybin does this is not only by connecting parts of the brain, which are not normally connected to one another, mimicking something that's called synesthesia, but it changes the way the eye works in such a way that visual acuity itself is increased. Now, you, uh, you you mentioned that this chemical comes from, um, I'm sorry, what was the mushroom? Uh, mushrooms, uh, and it can be synthesized very easily. Interesting. Now, I, I've heard of what has been taken for many years as a hallucinogenic. Is that correct? Yes, we're talking about magic mushrooms, as they're colloquially called, not regular mushrooms. You know what's fascinating about a chemical influencing the brain in a way that makes us conceive or at least perceive in ways that we couldn't otherwise is i don't know have you guys read the book dune by frank herbert it's one of my favorite books no you know what every everybody every single person who i consulted about this episode aside from jonathan and myself mentioned dune as the first thing so let me just let me just set this the scene here basically there's this substance the spice melange that only exists on one planet in the galaxy which is arrakis dune desert planet and i mean at the risk of being crass it's pooped out by sandworms 
And when it's consumed, it expands the mind's possibilities. And and in it, first of all, the, the book series takes place over tens and hundreds of thousands of years to kind of give that whole scope about how, you know, time's just a moment. Anyway, the way this re- relates to psilocybin, which I think is fascinating, is that Frank Herbert had the foresight to see that not only might our transhumanism come from us engineering machines or combining them with ourselves, but it also might come from us affecting ourselves with substances and sort of going beyond that topic. And that's where the Spacing Guild comes from in Dune. They can fold space because they're dosing this this spice melange. So when you often. say fold space, you you specifically refer to wormholes, right? Or I'm sorry, not wormholes. Uh, yeah, exactly. I guess a tesseract, or or, or how, however you will. The idea that you can pick a point far away in space and touch two points together without ever needing to travel. Wow. I'm really looking forward to continuing the conversation about space folding, so I don't want to get in the way of that. <laughs> but I just wanted to comment on the other side, which is referenced Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Instead of the spice melange, we have Soma, mm-hmm. which is the brain washing substance that they're using to make everybody into the sort of just operational entities that they are. It's and then they go to New Mexico and find the wild man, et cetera, Brave New World. It's the sinister I haven't read cousin. that book. I need to, you're spoiling it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No. Yeah, no, but I didn't spoil too much. There's, there's I know, more. I the 1930s. There's, there's also so khaki much more. It's great. You should check it out. Wow. So we, we obviously have two two different outlooks uh, about about any kind of these substances one of them is is where it's used as 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 an enhancement the other one is where it's clearly portrayed as a as a very negative thing it's it, it limits uh, humanity and it's used to control people so so we've got many sides of this issue represented uh, across science fiction if i may i'd like to talk about one of the first transhumanist substances it was invented 10,000 years ago, or at least domesticated 10,000 years ago. It's called grain. Grain led to alcoholism. Grain led to people being fertile enough to increase the population to a dangerous level. It created the dystopia that we live in today, and we're just getting out of. We're going, we're going back to our roots as hunter-gatherers. We are becoming a society that can communicate, so everybody will be able to know everyone. That's the natural state of humans. Wait, so you're saying that you think that all of this interconnectivity that we have through our technology that we're using to, to sort of gain a perspective where we really understand who we are as a species, what where we belong in the natural order, you think that that's sort of a new enlightenment that will allow us to have happier, more full lives, and it'll be more utopian than the past when we were sort of in the dark? Absolutely. I, I've watched the news, and I've gotten numb to things, and I don't like that. I, if somebody I knew were murdered... I would be devastated, and I think I should be devastated if I see anybody murdered. But now you're seeing, on the news, you're seeing so much both tragedy and joy happening all over the world that, and and this is fascinating, I, I actually read an article the other day that was talking about the greatest challenge of our generation is that we're a tribal species facing globalization, and our awareness isn't meant to be as heightened as it is. And so we're having a hard time processing how much we know about what's going on all over the world today. So in a way, what you're saying is that we're taking a transhuman jump as we gain that awareness and starting to, to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, we should have never uh, stopped being bands of humans. I think that if I had to redo life, I would do it 50,000 years ago. But we are who we are now. And since we are who we are now, we should just go forward and do what we do best and improve things. And, and adapt. Yeah. yeah. Adapt. Humanity is adaptive. We are born with no information. 
and it's a beautiful time to be alive, but nonetheless, we do still have limitations, like that we can only care about a certain number of people. Oh, yeah, Dunbar's number. <laughs> right. That's our tribal group. That's all the people we can really truly know, right? Let's go on and uh, um, clarify uh, Dunbar's number again. Pretty much it's that there's a cap on the m- number of people that you can actually care about and have, like, empathy for. See, what I believe about Dunbar's number is that even though Dunbar, based on physiology and basically just random guessing, uh, thought that humans could only interact with 150 humans meaningfully or, or 200 at the most, I believe that's more of a fractal. I think that we could have one human in our minds that represents, for example, all of Russia. You know, when something bad happens to somebody in Russia, we just think of that person called Russia stubbing their toe or something. You know, I like that. And actually, I think that's a, l- a little bit less cynical than than the Dunbar's number. Because, you know, you know, again, you're right. Yeah, it, it could be that just we, we only process so much uh, information and, and it'd be um, information overload if, if it was individuals. But I really, really like that because it's not anybody. It's not any one single individual's responsibility to to to. Uh, uh, know deeply and care about everybody else in the world. So that's, I, I like the fractal outlook on it. And as Gable can attest, I'm a horrible cynic and a pessimist. <laughs> that's not true, actually. Out of us two, I'm usually a little more cynical, and Jonathan is typically the optimist. Uh, I'd like to talk about the um, the information processing aspect of what you just said, where we can only we can only process so much information at one time. And I think that's a big part of the whole transhuman thing is being able to process more because we have more data coming at us all the time. So right now we can process um, visual input, we can process auditory input, we can taste things, we can smell things, and that's about it. So maybe with transhumanism and with this um, interconnection, we can start to where we we feel more of what's going on in our community through these social networks, and we can actually start to um, empathize with with the person that represents Russia. You know, whenever we create this this ideal um, aspect of Okay, so we have this this person, and they represent Russia, and how are they doing? And then we can uh, interact with them in that way, in, in our minds. Like we're we're changing the way we process things as we evolve as a species. Now, thinking about changing things that we process, there's a few experiments that have been conducted with electrodes that have been implanted into monkey brains. You just kind of randomly implant these electrodes into the motor part of the brain, and they can learn to control a third arm. They could literally learn how to control a sense that didn't exist before. They extend their sense of proprioception. And to this end, I think that if we implant it, if we found the pattern that exists in the prefrontal cortex, created a sort of, if you've ever seen those mirrors that look like they're really deep, but they're not really deep, something like that, um, but that is implanted into the prefrontal cortex so that we have a virtual six million foot long prefrontal cortex and we just implant random stuff into there that connects to random web pages, that can be a huge step forward. Oh my goodness! I'm sorry. That that's absolutely mind blowing. I'm I'm I, I I think it is it is phenomenal news that you know the story you just um, mentioned about monkeys and being able to control a third arm because what I feared. I, I feared that, that, that our brains or that the brains of mammals were, were, were not that elastic. That is to say, it couldn't do anything uh, that it's not already used to doing. I thought that'd be a whole nother complex way of getting that to work. We touched on, on the idea uh, about monkeys being able to control a third arm with no trouble at all once it's implanted. What that, in, what that indicates is, is, is that our, our control mechanism is, is very elastic and it can adapt very, very easily. But I want to say something else as well. When we talk about controls, uh, um, you know, there's a certain amount of information and there's a certain amount of complexity that's involved in, say, picking up your arm or sticking out your tongue or something like that. Now, now, 
what, how complicated would it be to control uh, 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 something like um, you said, um, on a computer we have our mouse clicker and we've got our fingers. What is the limit for how many controls we can put um, into our brain? Like we are not limited by our digits. Uh, we, we can do so much so quickly as soon as we get that interface. Do you guys have any th thoughts on that? I have a thought about that. I think that the size of our brain can be expanded so that we can increase that limit arbitrarily. Wow. To give a couple of stories about that sort of thing, there's this device invented at the same time as a computer mouse. It had five little pads on it, each corresponding to a finger. And you could type on this pad. It took about two hours to learn how to do it and much more time to master. But after a while, you'd be able to control a computer very easily just by wiggling your fingers. Wow. And people got to the point where they'd be across rooms at conferences, wiggle their fingers at each other to type messages to each other, and they would understand it. So there is an extreme expansion to the human brain. Not only that, there's this tribe in Africa, forgive me, I don't know the name of the tribe, grow, that only lives in the forest. And when this uh, ethnologist went to go visit them, or ethnographer, um, he found out that when he took them to the plains, they thought that buffalo were the size of bugs. They literally could not process distance because the human mind is so adaptable. Interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. Now, they could not process distance because they didn't have to. Yeah, because they lived in forests. Oh, I got it. I got it. Okay. I think that's fascinating. You know, humans' evolutionary advantage is that we can do more than we start our lives with, right? Like, like John was saying, we start with no information. And, and by the end of a life, we could have gained valuable skills that we can then, through teaching, pass on to newer generations and they can be greater than we are that's that's our main advantage and and i was going to say something that sam said really i thought was brilliant and i wanted to touch on our social networks i wonder if we could create a physical map of our social networks and if they'd look anything like the networks of nerves and neurons in our brains because i would imagine that that would be a way the universe would express itself right the way the way that we tend to design our our place around us we might be creating our new networks in our own image in a way we talk about facebook and we talk about how much information is going back and forth between human beings on the internet all the time i think that the internet you know is uh, the, the the internet has has a lot of information over the last 30 years that you know that, that that's old and 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 a very very small of the entire internet is, is really active. You've got the dark web. You, you know, you, you've got the, what do you call it? Is it the light web? The, the normal web? It's the light bright. Yeah, I think the it's light bright. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So here is my question that I want, I want to throw at you guys uh, real quick. There's a lot of talk about where life emerged. Now, there's not a lot that is known for certain. There absolutely is not. But, you know, the big term that's thrown around is a primordial soup. Now, where I'm going with this is let's just talk about a primordial soup from a long, long time ago in order for, for, for any life, in, in order for biological life to emerge. My gosh, that's that's not well understood. People say, "Wait, wait a minute! You, you you've got to have certain materials. You, you you basically have to have certain information arranged a certain way, and it, it, it's extraordinarily rare. We don't see it uh, very often. So so for." You know, for these intents and purposes, I, I, I want to talk about the digital world, and, and I want to tell you this next bullet point on, on my presentation. I call it digital primordial soup. Can you guys see where I'm going with this? The deeper topic here is is the term I had was a digital primordial soup. Think about the internet, you guys. Imagine if you've got an old website that's not used anymore, but you still have a very active uh, security firewall that's still at least processing information, and it's kind of a routine thing. It doesn't necessarily ha um, have to stop. Say it's just abandoned. Um, 
over time, the internet and the information in the internet, in the internet, just like anywhere else, experiences entropy. You've got passwords. You've got people communicating. You've got movement. So you all can see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, I would love to. I'm always coming back to science fiction. So yes. one of my favorites of all times is is Isaac Asimov's I Robot. Yes, yes. And can I give a spoiler? It's a really old book. Is that is that okay? Is spoilers. That Let's just say spoilers on I Robot. Spoilers on I Robot. Okay, turn Warning. turn down. Yes. So at the end of the book, he's this this journalist has been um, investigating artificial intelligence and and where the Asimov's three laws of robotics have gone wrong, where robots have acted abnormally, which doesn't happen in most instances, but does on occasion. And what he finds out is that um, a true artificial intelligence without any laws has been governing planet Earth for about three years. And wow. that, and that you know, stocks have, have been stable and, and people have had enough to eat and things have been pretty much okay for the past three years. And, and the guy realizes that there's nothing he can do about it and that, and that it's already happened and it's not going to change. And I wonder if this, this primal digital, uh, primordial digital soup is something like that where it's like perhaps artificial intelligence could arise from a massive network, a like neural MySpace. network like what if the it's MySpace? What if it's MySpace? What if, it, <laughs> what if it gets struck by lightning and then, and then artificial intelligence... I, I wonder if this is another chance for us to check out how and in, in case you're in case you can't see us because you can't John just took off his headphones and plugged his ears because he hasn't read iRobot yet and he really wants to know what Asimov's vision was in purity he didn't want to let Sam like ruin it for no, him. no that's fine that's but, fine but no I think this is another chance much like how how I was talking about how what we were talking about social networks before and and what I think is that this is another opportunity for our designs to mirror our own design or our own evolution in that uh, old websites just sitting there not being used right yeah and if yeah. we look at our own DNA yes. right our own genome mm -hmm. one there's a lot we don't understand but two there's a lot of it that we feel like might be out of date and obsolete and just kind of along for the ride and that's how I picture those own webs those old websites sitting there yeah. and, and this we've seen the primordial soup I think we've already begun to evolve into it as far as oh. become living in a digital world yes right yes exactly you know it, it, I love this idea because uh, life you know that we have it, it's three-dimensional it's biological but but what would you call the dimensions the spatial dimensions of an all digital life I, what they can I mean there's a thing called there's a thing called fractal dimension where you can actually measure that kind of thing Wow and um, I think it should be pretty high for uh, the digital realm yeah so like, where does VR hit on that? Like, I don't know if I'm making Virtual reality or augmented reality, because you're not only in three dimensions, but you also have, have images that you are interacting with. Well, right, so I, does that hit on that spectrum of what you were talking about? It, it does in a way. I think that uh, what you're talking about is the experience of VR, and what thing that I have to say about that is that the brain itself is not three-dimensional. It's three-dimensional in fact, but the way that it's wired is closer to four-dimensional. So it's a hypercube <laughs> of a brain. A little bit. It's like a hyper glob. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love that hyperglob. They can That's learn awesome. to do anything yes. if we wanted to. That's awesome. Oh, I want to clarify really quickly. I have no idea how life, what we call life, would emerge. I, I've got no clue. I'm, I'm just saying that that you know, if, if there's information on the internet, old websites and security things, it would be crazy if 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 there could be such a thing. You know, like you know. Let there be life, and then suddenly there are crawling things and creatures like on the internet that are their own volition. You know, like that would just blow my mind. It's a whole other way of looking at life. So, like the Geico lizard could jump from the ad onto the Facebook page, 
and like scroll. Are you talking about oh, this? Are you oh, talking about like things? I, I'm I'm just like I'm off on a tangent. I'm oh, sorry. No, no, no. We can totally edit this out. Yes. <laughs> so there's these things called Wikipedia edit wars. Usually it's two nerds on opposite sides of the internet right. warring. But sometimes there's these bots at war. And the behavior that emerges can be complex. In fact, um, to go into more complex behavior that emerges unexpectedly, um, when designers are doing, when people are doing AI for things like swarms for 3D movies, they have to be careful to not give them too complex a behavior. Because, like, they did this with penguins one time, these... um, uh, that movie about penguins. Happy Feet. Happy Feet. Or was it the uh, Morgan Freeman one? Because that no, was no, it was like penguins. Oh, okay. Very yeah, because we're talking about animation, right? It's very so, cute. It was a great villain. So onslaught. We have a swarm. Yeah, um, but they gave the penguins too com- complex behavior, and I know it's going to sound like uh, fluff, but they stopped obeying commands. <laughs> they started doing their own thing um, because they were given enough "quote unquote" freedom. Well, that's like the whole basis of systems theory is that. If you create a system, it's going to behave in a lot of ways that you don't expect. Like you can never trust a system to 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 behave the way it's designed to. It's going to have flaws and it's going to create its own strange abnormalities. And the brain is such a complex system. Yes, yes, it is. God, that's super interesting. And it's it's in everything. If you're talking about just evaluating a program, you're just talking about getting feedback, any information. We're talking about systems theory in general. You're trying to design a feedback system so that you can get the metrics that you need to do, I don't know, program management. And like you said, you ask questions, you have a survey, and you're trying to get these metrics as a result of it. People have their own interpretations of your questions. You're not going to get, you have this perfectly designed survey, you have this perfect research, and then interpretation happens. Yeah, exactly. And and I think this is a great time to bring up the matrix. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, we, we started talking at the beginning about artificial intelligence versus um, transhuman people that are going to be able to compete almost with, with artificial intelligence. Yes. And and um, Julian keeps on bringing up the fact that, that we're creating machines in our image. And I think that means that it's a really important time for philosophy to make a comeback. Because if we're going to be creating hyper-intelligent machines... We're going to want to make sure that we're teaching them really well. And currently, as a society, like if you're just looking at all of the back alleys of the Internet and mm-hmm. that's what the artificial intelligence learns from, you're going to have a very dangerous machine <laughs> And if you have a philosophy around it. I mean, you're talking about the subject that's going to be our great hurdle, right, in, in reaching the next, I don't know, dimension, stage of existence, what have you, is that who is it that's going to say which philosophy is right when we're teaching our brand new robot overlords to be what they should be programmed like who, who is it to say whoever makes the first artificial intelligence <laughs> well not only not only that i mean artificial intelligence is going to have its own culture and if morality evolved for any reason it evolved correctly i like that i like that and again i really appreciate the optimism here because i know there's a lot of cyn- uh, cynicism and futurism including myself so, so jonathan just to say i do appreciate your optimistic outlook and it's it's certainly worth considering you know i'm walking on sunshine <laughs> yes, Whoa. yes. Very good, very good. Oh man, gosh. Didn't I love this, this already happen though? Wasn't there that like really crazy AI Twitter bot that like turned evil and <laughs> like totally fascist and became a no, Nazi? It was it was Donald Microsoft. Trump? Of course it became a Nazi. Oh yeah. No, okay, you're right. Then it does count what you put into it. And of course that was a Microsoft with a dollar sign for an S. So so feasibly we could have, you know, 
before we know it, some kind of like combination of, of, of like MySpace and and as you said, maybe albino black sheep and some AOL website. No, actually, a, um, my parents still use AOL. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's, it's, Earthlink. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Earthlink or, or like some part of Netscape that's still floating around there, just like come together in this Frankenstein's monster and emerge, and you know, like some some battle, some some security uh, editing bot wars that, that'll be the catalyst for it. Who knows? Who knows? It could sounds all... like a creation myth. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, I do think that if that happens, we're going to have to invest a lot in therapy for these machines. And I'm not even joking, uh, because imagine you have a human and they're stuck in a coffin for 300 years and then you let them out. They're going to be kind of psychologically messed up. I Yes, but they're not aware of it until until the right parts come together. Or at least I think. Well, I mean, what if they're already aware? What if that's the only reality they know? OK, but what if instead of just making a machine separate from ourselves, yes. we actually just turned ourselves into part that's machine, part human, right? And then we, can, just, we can integrate. I think I, th- I think so. Yeah, that, that's actually the goal in order to compete with any sort of artificial intelligence that, that ever comes. I think it's unnecessary to compete because I don't think we deserve to. Oh, okay. Whoa! That was that was the cynicist. That was a cynical no, thing just coming out right yeah. there. I believe you were so that, optimistic. I believe that a person is something that can think, and if something evolves that's better than us, it deserves it, not us. We're just some little carbon things. Who cares? You're probably not wrong. I mean, I don't I don't tend to think about a bug when I squish it. And, and I think it might even be a greater dichotomy when a robot would think to move me out of the way to get to what it needs to, to advance. Right? And, of course, a selfish part of me hopes that I could be part of this next wave. But I like to keep things happy, but we don't have to. <laughs> no, we can inspire a little bit of darkness in our listeners. <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's fine. All right, all right. Well, there's always the possibility that we'd, that we'd be like bugs to artificial intelligence. But I would like to think that if they are uh, hyper-intelligent, they might also have compassion and that they might... Um, you know, take care of us the way that we should take care of dolphins and monkeys and our planet, and th- they would be more responsible than, than we are with many organisms. Yeah, bacteria does not care about other bacteria. Humans care about other humans. Not enough, but they do. You know, uh, wow, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. You talk about hyper-intelligent things. Uh, I, I don't know if I said this before, but I want to say it again. When we talk about the difference in intelligence between us and a hyper-intelligent being, uh, there, here's an analogy that I got straight from Jonathan. Um, would you like me to say it, or can I have you say it? Oh, you can go ahead. Oh, awesome, awesome. So Jonathan uh, was saying, you know, I, I really think that, that, that uh, more intelligent, uh, hyper-intelligent beings, the difference between them and us will be kind of like the difference between us and, say, moth. And you think, well, can a moss plan for a mortgage? You know, it's like it can't even begin to fathom whatever even that 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 is to do. So yeah, I could barely eat the paper that the mortgage is printed on. Yeah, that, I thought that was a fabulous, riveting analogy, and that stayed with me. And I'm like, I want that as a sound clip. That 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 sounds amazing right there. Now, speaking of mind blowing things, um, actually, uh, um, I I have not read the book Dune. But based on a previous conversation that I had with you, Julian, can you tell us a little bit about some of the amazing things in the Dune series? I'm not familiar with it. Okay, so uh, Dune is a novel by Frank Herbert, uh, uh, widely regarded as one of the most fascinating sci-fi books that's ever been written. And, you know, the reason that I love Dune, one, it's the first book I ever read. And, and I read it very late in life, and it's what made me fall in love with 
the written word. And he's very poetic in the way that he expresses human concepts and sort of builds technology into his universes. I love the book Dune. It's crazy. I could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. I will do everyone the service of not talking about it all night. Um, but if you guys want to hang out after this and, and talk about Dune, I'm totally down. Um, basically, here's the deal. A long time ago, or I guess a long time from now, in a galaxy not so far away, there is an order called the Bene Gesserit, who are space witches, who breed genes and, and alleles together to try and make the perfect human being. And off of uh, and what they do to sort of see into the truth of things is they dose with this spice melange, right? This this product that only comes from Arrakis, and uh, it it alters their perception, and that's one way that they're sort of doping themselves to be able to be superhuman, right? There's another break off where uh, some of their some of the males and all the Bene Gesserits are females. Some of the males start to dose with this spice melange, and they can't see the same things. And there's this prophecy in the whole Dune universe where there's going to be one male that can see where the rest of them cannot see, right? And so these males start dosing themselves to death sometimes with the spice melange until if they, essentially they've been doing it for so many generations that they start to evolve into a new creature, which is a creature that can manipulate time and space. And that's what we call the spacing guild in the book Dune. And they open up the ability for humans to spread so far through the galaxy because they can fold space with their freaking brains, which is awesome. So you mentioned guilds. Is this a feudal kind of society? I'm not. No, I don't think there's any serfdom. I don't think there's any lords. I think it's just a guild, like people who do the same thing, like just lock themselves in a tank with a bunch of drugs and get their minds blown. Like how we're kind of a podcasting guild. But I'm the lord and you're all the serfs. I'd like to think that I'm like a knight slash wizard ninja. <laughs> well, I'm a priest then. I'm a bard and this is settled. There's no, there's no argument. She's got plus two to charisma because of oh, that. This is getting so nerdy. <laughs> but that's that's what leads up to the like this was leads to the future of Dune and, and 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 Sam, you were mentioning something that was fantastic about that, which is like in Dune. You actually have robot over- overlords at one point, and society, the humans overthrow their robot overlords. And yeah. then they outlaw making artificial intelligence for a long time, which leads to sort of mysticism entering the world where they can use words to break rock. And they, they actually sort of use the spice melange in a different way to alter themselves, completely separate from computers and technology because it's been banned. Anywho, that's wow. my nerdy. So that's like post Matrix, because in the Matrix, it's it's the robots have the upper hand and they have us, you know, stored as batteries. But but in 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 this universe in Dune, it's it's the humans have won in that war, and and it's po- wow, that's amazing. Everything's mystic. Well, the yeah. thing that I like so much about that is that is that they end up shutting down the whole you know the AI factories and saying you can't make robot in the image of man, and then they take up the slack. And so they have these people called Mentats, and they've been trained for their entire life to to do the calculations that their computers could do. And so these people oh. become machine-like. I read about that. And in fact, uh, so as I understand it, that these these Mentats, these humans, go into this deep meditative state and then and then calculate very very fast. Is, is, that, is, is that correct? It's pretty accurate. I yeah. mean, look the the book. All of the different types of people and different family houses of the lands are at, and all the different races. What they're doing is they're submitting themselves to super harsh conditions in one way or another to elicit a response. They're forcing themselves to adapt and evolve, and in that way, they're designing themselves on a very long scale uh, into something that is transhuman. When I think of the very earliest transhumans in that vein, are the Inuit. The Inuit don't need vegetables, for example, to survive healthfully. They are stout and they have a darkish skin to survive the extremely harsh UV light that comes from the snow. 
like um, they are kind of transhuman. All their tech, and also they, it's not impressive now, but they fight whales with canoes. And so, in that same vein, imagine if we knew that our sun was going to go nova or supernova, whichever it will end up being. And what we did in order to survive that absolutely imminent, say, a few hundred generations from now, we knew it was going to happen. And we began right now submitting ourselves to long periods of time without any sunlight in order to force ourselves to evolve, to live after the sun had gone. That would be sort of what Frank Herbert was saying in the book, would be, but it would be one way for us to be exceptional creatures, right? I've got this personal pet interest right now, and it's called um, Flow States. There's this thing called the Flow Genome Project, and it's a group of people trying to figure out um, how humans get into flow. And everybody's been in flow. It's whenever time drops away and, and you're in the zone, you know, and, and, and there's selflessness and you react at, at, like, really high speeds. And it's a, it's satisfying and it feels good. There's It's someplace that most people want to be. And for a lot of people, that's a spiritual thing. But... Um, through these things like, you know, in doing it's a spice melange and through adventure sports and through um, doing things to get yourself in the zone, it's almost like you're pushing humanity to the edge. And I wonder if that's like different from transhumanism versus like ultra humanism, you know, like really pushing the potential. Super interesting question. It's just on my mind and what you were talking about with the Inuit people and your question uh, Julian, about how, you know, can we purposefully say, all right, we can expect the sun may go supernova or nova, so let's let's think long term and let's try to purposefully uh, manipulate ourselves and our, our genes and evolve ourselves to achieve this purpose. Oh, boy, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be just great if humans thought like that? Wouldn't it be great if we had any sort of freaking forethought and, like, thought about our environment? Damn, wouldn't that have been awesome? Well, Sorry. <laughs> one group of transhumanists, proto-transhumanists, I'm going to call them because whatever, is um, the Navajo people. Um, this is a little bit controversial, but there's some theories that there was overhunting, and that's what caused the Navajo to be so ecologically sound. Was overhunting, that, can you clarify that? So so, so when the, the, they came over the Bering Strait, mm-hmm. um, there was little restriction on hunting, so they hunted all the uh, pack animals, which did exist before humans. Mm-hmm. And because they overhunted them, the ones that survived were the people who um, didn't didn't have the mentality of overhunting. So maybe that'll happen to us. Maybe we all have to just die. I'm just I just came out of an ecology class, and I can't help but to chime in with that. Yeah, and I think the humans can learn a lot from our mistakes. The sinister nature of humanity is something that does not necessarily have to be in our future, but we create the future in our present. What we believe about the future will, by necessity, be part of what it will mean to be. We've explored these avenues, and as we go forward, let us move forward. The mind is merely, but significantly, a way in which we react to the world in a way which represents it. My name is Jonathan. And my name is Gabriel. Um, And Julian, would you like to plug anything? Would I like to plug anything? Yes, um, I guess... uh, I would like to plug my project. I'm the owner of a performing arts collective called Wild Humans. You can hear us. Uh, we have both music and visuals and uh, lots of fun stuff going on from, from painters to slam poets to dancing, all those things. But there is a band called Wild Humans. We're working on our first full-length album right now titled Of Course. You can hear us at wildhumansmusic.com and you can find us. Please like us on Facebook at Wild Humans Music. Nice, nice. And also... Sam Sanders. And Sam, is there anything you'd like to plug? Nope. And uh, today we actually had 
um, Stephen recording us. Um, and Stephen, do you want to say a couple of words on the podcast? <laughs> I really love the show. Thank you so much, Stephen. means a lot. I really love the show, too. We should do a podcast sometime, Stephen. Oh, and we are going to do a future podcast about transhumanism. This is kind of our first preview episode that has the format of Breaking Math. Indeed, and we're going to have a couple of topics like uh, transhumanism and and, uh, transportation. Oh, yeah, transhumanism and chemistry. And uh, Stephen will actually be on a future Santa Fe Trail Media podcast. He is spearheading uh, and designing the, the podcast on creative writing, as Jonathan just said. Hold him to it. Breaking Math is brought to you by KUNM Generation Listen and by viewers like you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.